0: According to the American College of OBGYN, healthcare providers can use either the carpenter Calcin criteria or the National Diabetic Data Group's criteria for the screening or diagnosis of gestational diabetes. Remember that carpenter calcin has a lower threshold for screening and diagnosis of the condition. While the college favors the two-step approach over the one-step approach for gestational diabetes screening and diagnosis, there's still questions that exist about the condition. For example, what really is the best time to screen for this in pregnancy? The traditional 24 to 28 weeks may actually be too late. So in this podcast, we're going to review the Go Moms NIH study going on right now because this is going to be huge. It's going to be a big one because it's going to answer some very relevant questions that may affect our interpretation and understanding and management of gestational diabetes. Go Moms! Let's get to that now. Historically, the screening for gestational diabetes was paced on patients' individual risk factors for gestational diabetes, and some of those risk factors included things like race, BMI, previous macrosomia, or previous history of gestational diabetes. But because a significant amount of patients can develop gestational diabetes without those risk factors, the college scrapped the risk factor-based approach and went to universal screening years ago. Traditionally, this is done at 24 to 28 weeks, and the idea behind that is that that's a time when human placental lactogen now has sufficient concentration in the maternal compartment to actually antagonize insulin and result in the condition. But that was pretty much all based on lab tests and kind of consensus opinion, not real hard and fast science. So this is where the Go Moms study comes into play. This new study, supported by the NIH, aims to improve gestational diabetes screening and diagnosis by better understanding blood glucose levels all throughout pregnancy. And this is pretty neat, and I'll address this in a little bit. But this uses wearable technology. It's fascinating. So I want to get into that in just a moment. Gestational diabetes, as we've already addressed, is usually diagnosed between 24th and the 28th week of pregnancy. But... Here's what new data has shown that may actually be too late to counteract some long-lasting harms to the pregnant woman and her child. Now, during pregnancy, these changes in glucose metabolism actually can begin to affect the fetus way before gestational diabetes is actually diagnosed. With sites around the country, the glycemic observation and metabolic outcomes in mothers and offspring, or GO-MOMs, aims to fill the knowledge gaps that exist regarding gestational diabetes. The study will enroll about 2,150 pregnant women without diabetes in their first trimester. Funded by the NIH National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases, GoMoms will use continuous glucose monitoring technology to map blood glucose levels throughout pregnancy. So you've seen those commercials on TV, the little glucose monitoring devices. And think about that. From the first trimester all throughout pregnancy, they're actually going to track how glycemic levels rise throughout gestation and actually can get a better glimpse in real time of when those sugars start to spike and it may be, as anticipated, before the 24th week. GoMoms will set the foundation for determining future approaches to screening, diagnosis, and eventually the treatment of elevated blood glucose levels during gestation. By understanding more about glucose levels during pregnancy, then we as healthcare providers can identify potential early indicators of gestational diabetes and pinpoint the best times to screen for and treat it. Let's pause here for a moment and just talk about some things that we've learned about gestational diabetes. Because remember, just because the patient passes the 3-hour diagnostic test, meaning she does not have 2 or more abnormal values, she may not be all in the clear. Remember that just having one abnormal value on the diagnostic test means that she's still at risk for future development of type 2 diabetes. Additionally, pregnant women with elevated blood glucose levels during pregnancy, even if not high enough to meet the definition of gestational diabetes, those children can actually have a higher risk of developing obesity and impaired glucose metabolism up to a decade later, even though the moms escaped the formal diagnosis of gestational diabetes. This effect in children called metabolic imprinting are thought to occur much earlier during pregnancy than when gestational diabetes is currently screened. Now we can't overstate this enough because one single abnormal value on 3-hour oral glucose tolerance test during pregnancy is associated with adverse maternal and neonatal outcomes. The Gray Journal was one of the first ones to report this in a systematic review and meta-analysis in 2016. This study found that compared to women who had no abnormal values, women with one abnormal value on the 3-hour, 100-gram oral glucose tolerance test had a significantly increased risk for poor outcomes comparable with women who had gestational diabetes by failing two or more values. According to the systematic review, women with one abnormal value had an increased rate of macrosomia, large for gestational age infants, cesarean section, neonatal hypoglycemia, pregnancy-induced hypertension, and fetal APGAR scores of less than 7 at 5 minutes. There was also an increase in neonatal intensive care admissions and respiratory distress syndromes. So that's a quick clinical pearl. Don't just look for her failing the two or more values on that three-hour test to make the diagnosis. If they fail one of those values, they have impaired glucose tolerance, and they may still be at risk of adverse outcomes. So be conservative. Still give them nutritional consultation. Still give them information on checking fasting blood sugars in two hours postprandial, and watch their blood pressures as they advance during pregnancy. Now, back to Go Moms. Northwestern University is the study's coordinating center and a study site. Other locations include Columbia University in New York, Kaiser Center for Health Research in Honolulu, Kaiser Center for Health Research in Portland, Oregon, McGee Women's Hospital in Pittsburgh, Mass General in Boston, Tufts in Boston, Women and Infants Children of Rhode Island in Providence, and Yale University in Connecticut. So Carpenter-Causen, National Diabetic Data Group, one hour, three hour, those are all good things to discuss, but we may be doing it all wrong. Until the Go Moms study gives us this information, we'll just keep doing what we do. But remember, information keeps changing. We used to think that if you pass a three hour test because you only failed one value, you're in the clear. And we now know that's not the case. You're still at risk for obstetrical complications and there still may be risk to the child by genetic imprinting. Now, the good news is that these epigenetic changes doesn't mean that your child is doomed. There's still ways to avoid that because, again, epigenetics is real. And we now know that we are not just our genetics, but we are how we choose to express those genetics. And a lot of that is our responsibility through epigenetic profiling. Well, as always, thanks for being part of our podcast family. And we'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.